Coming up on this week's show, the return of Turrican, kind of. An iconic Sega arcade closes in Japan. And we explore games at work with Frank Gaskin. Hello and welcome to the Retro Hour podcast, episode number 240. Your weekly dose of retro gaming and technology news with me, Dan Wood. Me, Ravi Abbott. And me, Joe Fox. And a very warm welcome to our first show of September. You know, I was just thinking, actually, normally around this time of year, we're all feeling a little bit worn out because we've just had a packed summer full of retro gaming events that we've normally been to all across Europe. And this year, obviously, with everything that's been going on, they were all cancelled. But actually, we did a little bit of a virtual gaming convention over the weekend, didn't we? Yeah, so we usually go to Retro Spill Messen, which is now known as Retro Messer in Norway. And it's a really cool event. Uh, we've, we've hosted talks there with the Rare crew and all of those guys. Well, they did this weekend uh, awesome kind of Retro Messer Live. And the idea behind that was that they were raising funds for next year's event because they haven't been able to do an event this year. They haven't been able to get ticket sales, you know. So to ensure the kind of future of this event, and they've had loads of people on there. So they had John and Brenda Romero. They had... Metal Jesus Rocks, Howard Scott Walshaw. Um, us guys. Us guys, yeah. David Brevik, Trip Hawkins, Ashens. So they've interviewed these guys all over the weekend, and those videos are going to be going up on their YouTube channel. But also, you can help donate by going to retrospillmesson.no forward slash donate and that will really help them next year hopefully run an event and hopefully we can get out to norway again yeah i do think it's really important that you know obviously there's been a lot of events and you know a lot of museums and everything all across the world that are really struggling at the moment because i mean it's not cheap to keep these things going and obviously if they can't sell tickets and people can't go this is a really good way to ensure that these events are going to be around in the future so i think it is important that people do support them yeah, and we had really good fun. I think they're going to start regularly doing these kind of talks with different guests and stuff uh, virtually. So, you know, there may be a lot more content coming out for you guys. I did love it when we were in Norway, actually. The fact that I think we are walking back from a bar and it was still daylight. Oh. And uh, that's a, a bit dangerous, actually, because it was about one o'clock in the morning. And that was, oh, the night's only early. Yeah, it's 1 a.m. I, I remember that. I was in, <laughs> unfortunately, I didn't get to go to Norway last year, only because of I went to Japan for my 30th birthday. And I remember Dan messaging me, and he was so drunk. And he was like, it's half 12 <laughs> in the evening, and I'm it's still light out, and I'm so drunk. <laughs> I was riding a bicycle completely <laughs> smashed <laughs> on the road really. at like one in the morning. <laughs> So it sounded absolutely amazing. Yeah, so I love Norway anyway, and that that event, I think, you know, one of the friendliest we've ever been to. What a great crowd that was there when we went. So, yeah, definitely support that. I'll put a link to the donate page and all the videos in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, you did mention that you were in Japan while we're out in Norway. Um, A bit of sad news out of Japan, actually, this week. I don't know if you visited this place. An iconic Sega arcade is closing down for good. Yeah, so I did get the chance to go, which uh, is absolutely amazing that I did go. So Ravi sent this one over to me this morning. So Sega Building 2 Arcade, which is in Akibara, has closed down for good. It actually closed down on the 30th of August, so the couple of days ago at the point of us recording this um sega haven't said why they've closed down but it is actually from what i understand the oldest standing arcade uh, in japan it's been there for 50 years or something crazy like oh, that wow. um, yeah there's five sega buildings yeah so there's still, 
So. Yeah, so it's in Akibara, uh, which is where me and my wife stayed, funny enough, which is like the retro game kind of like central of the world in Japan kind of thing. So it's, <laughs> What a coincidence. I know, funny that. <laughs> so it's absolutely full of arcades, but it's got this, it's got these five absolutely huge Sega arcades, but Sega Building 2 is like the big one and the one that's been there forever. But that to say, they haven't said why it's gone or why it's closed down, but speculation is is apparently during the pandemic, they tried to stay open and there was days where they had zero customers apparently. So they had yeah. absolutely nobody going in because there was no tourism. And then obviously the Japanese government have encouraged people not to go to these kind of places as well because of COVID. So it's really sad to see that it's actually kind of affecting, you know, Akibara as well, which is kind of sad because of when I was there, it was kind of like the only way I could describe it is kind of like Times Square in New York. It's really that busy and lit up. So you don't really think of these things. You kind of like live in your own bubble. And we've always thought like the arcade scene's been really strong and it, yeah. and it has been. But, you know, like they're saying at the moment, the tourists have dropped to virtually zero yeah. during the pandemic. And also lots of people have kind of started moving on to mobile platforms yeah. rather than arcades. Yeah, it says in the article what Ravi sent over um, recently that mobile gaming has actually taken over as the number one source of gaming in Japan, whereas it was arcade still before which is just incredible to think because obviously if you, in the UK and America, it, it's it's console gaming all the way. But yeah, it's it was arcade gaming and now it's mobile gaming for them. So that's probably got a big hand in it as well. And there's this amazing photo of the Japanese staff all kind mm. of outside bowing as people are taking photos and thanking the customers for that kind of time. It's a very Japanese image, that one is. Yeah, 100%. Like the fact that they all look so thankful as well, like, you know, they're all just there bowing and stuff. It's it's really sad to see, really. Yeah, and I imagine, you know, like you said, if the, literally no one is visiting these mm. venues at the moment and looking at it, I mean, you know, obviously you've been there. It looks like a pretty big place. Yeah. And I imagine, you know, <laughs> employing the staff there and keeping the lights on and just, you know, the day-to-day cost of it must be pretty astronomical if they're not making any profit off it, even for a company, you know, a worldwide company like Sega, who, of course, are not as big as they once were, but, you know, still got a few quid in the bank, I imagine. But it does say here, I mean, like you said, then there is a few other arcades around there as well. I mean, from what you've told me, the arcade scene is still pretty strong in japan yeah so obviously akibara is like the the central hub but every kind of town we went to we stayed in tokyo but tokyo is like a country in itself you know we're getting trains and subways all around the place but everywhere you went there were still arcades everywhere but akibara there was a every it was like starbucks like it was literally like there'd be a restaurant then a starbucks then an arcade like on every street there was like a huge arcade and like you say they are big they're not just like one floor they're like 10 floors you know and you'd get to a floor and it would just be like this is the fighting game floor and there'll be 30 tech and cabinets so obviously not in not in sega it was all virtual fighter but so yeah the, the arcade scene is still really big there it's just it's just sad to see obviously due to a bloody pandemic that you know some of them are closing down yeah, well, fingers crossed, you know, it's uh, not going to be too much longer until they can reopen and people can start going again. I mean, it's never really been a place that, you know, it's kind of been front of mind for me to visit. But since I've heard your stories, I think yeah, I'd really like it, you know, to, to go and have a visit to Japan. I'm not sure whether my missus would want to stay in the retro gaming capital area. Though. I might just no. have to you know, leave that detail out before we get there, maybe. <laughs> well, luckily, my wife, she actually researched it all for me. And she was the one who was just like, this is where we go. These are the flights we get. These are the trains you get, which is just absolutely amazing that she was just like because she's not a retro gamer at all or even much of a gamer but she was just like yeah let's just do it kind of thing and we had an amazing time uh but 
it might have something to do with the fact that I took her to a Disney World for her 30th birthday. So <laughs> there you go. swings around about yeah. yeah. something like that. <laughs> now let's talk about the return of a legendary gaming franchise, Turrican is apparently back on the PlayStation 4 and the Switch. Although, this has not been getting a great reaction from what I've seen. Yeah, um, it was weird because it was announced. I saw this Metro article where it was like, Torican's coming back from the original developers. You know, real kind of clickbaity hype train kind of stuff. And it turns out that they made an announcement and the announcement was it was coming out for the Switch and the PlayStation 4. But it's a simple port. It's not like a remaster. It's not like anything done. It's just that coming out to new systems. But as well, they announced these collector's packs. Now, these collector's packs have been getting a, yeah, I'd say quite a bad reaction because the price is absolutely I, nuts on some of them. I was literally about to say, like, I, w- I looked at the price. So it's 200 euros. And I thought, wow. okay, what, what do you get in that? And then it was just like the first thing it says is, you just get a port. It's not a remaster or anything like that. It's a port of, do you get the three original Amiga Turricans? And then you yeah, get... Yeah, yeah, you, get, you like get reprints. Yeah, and then you get like the SNES and Sega versions of it, the Mega Drive version. But and like, a load of crap as well. Like yeah, but then it's literally diorama, just like, figurine. It's, it's just like literally the fact that it's just like an a foil poster. And like, a you're key like, key chain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot of money. Like you would have thought you would want with that like... You know, when you get like these big box PC game like re-releases and you get like an acrylic see-through or glittery like cartridge or something for the Nintendo or something, you know, for that kind of costume, like a statue or something. Yeah. Not, not a keychain and a foil poster. But it's strictly limited games who are doing this, who kind mm. of do these limited runs. And you know what? Like they put them out there, they're expensive, but the Switch Ultra Pack is already sold out. Oh, so, really? Yeah, it does show... <laughs> That, not fair enough you, you know it's, it's expensive <laughs> what, what for us but people are buying it well, well we're wrong because it uh, i mean i was gonna say that's proved us wrong because of each each pack was limited to 2500 units wasn't it and they've already sold out then yeah that's crazy and, okay well uh, fair enough fair enough and I've, I've seen stuff like in the past with chris Holsbeck where he's released like the turrican remix album and that's been 150 pounds um you know, um, limited edition albums are like that. And there seems to be a lot of money kind of in Turrican and the Turrican collector. I kind of get it, but, you know, it it still doesn't seem to be one that could get that amount of value in my personal view. But, you know, they're selling, so... (laughs) I'm I'm just going to say it. I've only only played Turrican for the SNES and Mega Drive. And both times I've played it, I've been like, it's not as good as Contra. I'm just going to say it. I'm just going to say it. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we're going to get letters now. <laughs> See, I do love Turrican too. It is one of my favourite shooters on the Amiga. You know, I can always sit down and have a good blast with that. But I mean, looking at this pack as well, I mean, there's a making of documentary Blu-ray in here as well. Okay. Which I don't know if that was something that they released in the past that it's just kind of put in this bundle or whether it's something they made exclusively. So, you know, making a documentary is not a cheap thing to do. But I do get what you guys are saying. I mean, forking out 200 quid for a video game up front kind of does feel like a lot of money. I mean, it, it, you know, obviously it's sold out, so it's doing all right. But I think generally the way that most people would approach this or most companies is by doing a Kickstarter for this kind of thing, isn't it? It, it just seems yeah. a, a different way of doing it, asking, you know, for the money straight up front, I guess. And it does just, you know, if it was a new port that had like specific stuff for the Switch and it had like special stuff for the PS4, but it just seems like it's the original game kind of just 
shoved on those systems. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to pay 200 quid, you could, you know, you could get an Amiga off eBay. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. It. But for that kind of money, even today. Now, it's something that actually, when I read this story, I was quite pleased about because I messed up. We had a few sunny days, you know, here in the UK. It does happen occasionally. We get one or two days a year. <laughs> right, yeah. And of course, what do all us retro geeks do? Retro brighting day. Scott in the garden, let's make all of our yellow games consoles and computers white again. Uh, so I went out there with my Amiga 3000, which, uh, you know, was a wedding gift, actually, off uh, you and our friend Marvin, which, you know, amazing wedding present. And I put it out there. The computer came up really nice, but I made a bit of a mistake. Um, insofar as a keyboard, I put this uh, cellophane over it with the um, the B-Blonde solution, and it's kind of got this marbled effect. So it doesn't come out very nice, a keyboard. And obviously, if you look on eBay, I think for an Amiga 3000 keyboard, the cheapest I've seen was about £250 recently just for the keyboard. Oh, gosh. So I, recently I've been thinking, wouldn't it just be easier to paint it? Because I've tried retro-brighten it again, it hasn't made any difference. And actually now, someone has released... Atari and Amiga coloured spray paints. Yeah, this is such a smart idea. So Retrohacks, which is a company based in Poland, they've actually colour matched the spray paint. Now, I think this is good for people that have messed up retro brighting like you, but also people that have got like, you know, you have damaged sections on the case. Yeah. And then you could kind of fill it with a bit of filler. Well, if you were doing a really extreme case repair, this would be absolutely fantastic for it. So the, the colors at the moment, they've got Amiga 500 beige, C64 beige, Atari ST and STE gray as well. And this is great because a lot of the jobs I've seen done with with paints previously have just been ones from Halfords or like, you know, kind of people attempting to color match themselves. And they've never really got the original kind of colors going. Now, the problem with these are, at the moment, because of shipping restrictions, they're only available in Poland. But I guess if you know someone in Poland, you could probably get them sent to them and then sent out. And I'm sure they'll kind of be very popular and get sent out to the wider world in the future. Do you think these are custom made or are these just kind of things are bought off the shelf and then, you know, they put their own labels on them? Maybe, maybe they've... But I think there might have been a bit of mixing colour matching and stuff going in there. Or, you know, they're, they're going to be the most accurate to that colour compared to buying, like, I don't know, some bathroom paint or some... <laughs> and, and you could use these on anything, I guess. You could do your bike. You could do your car in Amiga 500 beige, Dan. <laughs> and you're, you're going to make your Amiga 500 Atari ST grey, aren't you, Ravi? And oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. There you go. <laughs> You know, though, it is, I've actually been looking at, you know, forums and stuff to try and get the exact colour match because I've been thinking of doing something like this and people often disagree about, you know, what the correct colour is and they give all these codes and you look and it doesn't look quite right. But often I think I kind of forget what the original colour of the systems is like. You know, when you did your um, your computer club that we went to last month in Nottingham, there's a guy there who had an Amiga 600 case and I was like, I don't remember it being that brilliantly white, but he's like, you know, he's, he never retro-brighted it. He never painted it. This is actually the original colour, but I think we get that used to seeing our consoles and computers like kind of yellowed or faded a bit that when you see the original colour again, it, it almost shocks you a bit, I think. Yeah, totally. And I think, you know, this this is going to bring some life into stuff. I'm definitely going to get the C64 one because I, I left a joystick on my C64 and it melted a whole section of it. So I need to kind of fill that up and then give it a respray. <laughs> 
Now, let's talk about these um, 8-bit, though. We've talked about them on the podcast before. They make really good controllers. And now you can get an arcade stick that I've got to say looks very cool, but also massively overshadows the Nintendo Switch. And it's kind of in that traditional NES style. Yeah, so 8-bit do are doing this new controller, which to me looks, it literally just looks like a uh, a really good NES advantage. Yeah. But yeah. like you say, it really does kind of dwarf the Switch because it's like twice as wide and twice as deep as the Switch. <laughs> um, but it's an arcade fighting stick, isn't it? essentially, um, with like all the turbo buttons and the micro switches and all that kind of stuff. Um, but what's really interesting about this is usually when you see these kind of like A-class kind of like top tier fighting sticks, you know, for Street Fighter Five and Street Fighter Four and stuff like that, they're always like $200, $300 as expensive as a console. What I think is really good about this is it's only $90 on pre-order. That's good. That's really good. And I was just looking here that um, they say it's Bluetooth, but if yeah. you're bothered about the latency you can actually use a USB-C port. Oh, really? It's going to make it a lot faster. So, you know, you won't have that latency over Bluetooth. That's awesome. Yeah, and I think the aesthetic of it as well, like it's it's got that classic kind of like Nintendo grey to it uh, with the big red buttons as well uh, and then, you know, the nice black joystick. Um, and then what's quite cool about it is the the kind of turbo buttons and stuff have kind of got the Super Nintendo colors, even though it's obviously not licensed by, you know, it's not been made by Nintendo or anything like that. I think that's really cool that it's done it. But it's only out for pre-order at the moment. It's being shipped on October 20th, apparently. And there's another thing they mentioned in this article here on VentureBeat too, that if you are like, you know, proper arcade stick connoisseur mm. you can actually swap out the universal buttons on here for like proper arcade parts like you know sanwa like oh, expensive really? premium parts as well and uh also the you know th- there's a bat style stick and a ball style stick that you can get for it too so i mean it really can be tailored to your your preference of arcade stick and controls that yes. could probably work with the snes mini as well or if, if you plugged it in via the um usb I was, no. about, I was about to say, it says it's for the Switch and PC, but I bet you can use it for a lot more, like if you have a play with it and stuff. But I think that's really interesting about how you said you can switch out the baton and for the joystick, you can have the ball or the baton. So I reckon, you know, when we go to the expos and stuff, we might start seeing a few of these knocking about people using them for the competitions because that's that's really cool that you can customise it to your needs. Yeah, and I think for fighting games, I always prefer like a bat controller, just because they're a bit easier in the hand to do like fast movements on. You say that, Dan, but whenever we play Soul Calibur and you're drunk and you're tearing your house apart looking for your Dreamcast uh, arcade stick because you're better on it, it never helps you, mate. Yeah, because you, you've been sitting there practicing for an hour while I find it. That's, right. <laughs> that's my excuse and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> now, before we get into our chat this week, all about games that weren't with Frank Gaskin, this is going to be a really interesting chat. We'll talk more about that in a second but speaking of physical media crash magazine is back now for those outside the uk crash was a legendary commodore 64 magazine back in the 80s i mean we've done entire episodes about crash before and this of course is chris wilkins now he's actually been doing this on patreon and it's going to be released now as a quarterly magazine in a five format and apparently a lot of the original crew are involved in this as well yeah, they're doing it a really interesting way. So it's retro fusion books, and it's got uh, Roger Keane and Oliver Frey's permission uh, and the blessing of future publishing as well. So they're actually going out and releasing it. Now, they're doing it in a really cool way. It's uh, basically quarterly, and it's going to come out as a physical magazine, but a PDF as well, and you can get it 
printed outside the UK, but they're doing it through Patreon, which I think is such a good idea for like magazine subscriptions. So you just subscribe as you would with Patreon, back it at different levels. So it's $3 a month, which is incredibly cheap for the PDF, uh, $6.60 for the printed magazine, and eight forty for the uh, non-UK printed one. It's 52 pages, if you want to get the printed edition. Um, A5 quarterly magazine. Like you said, then, I mean, converting the price, it works out about £4.25 plus VAT, which, I mean, you know, £4.25 for a magazine these days is, you know, it's a lot cheaper than any that I buy in Asda or WH Smith. Yeah, it's really reasonable. And I kind of think they've probably kept the price down because it is A5. But, um, you know, that's still going to be loads of content with, with 52 pages. I must admit, I do prefer A4 magazines, but I, I kind of guess why they're doing it. Because I remember, you know, trying to get that content, especially if you've got, I mean, how many pages did the say? So that's 52 pages. So if you're half that, that's going to be quite a thin A4 magazine, I imagine. And I guess with Patreon, they can find out the amount of people that are backing it and they yeah. can kind of justify doing it. So who knows, maybe in the future, if this if this is popular and it continues to get a kind of following, then they might be able to go A4 in the future. Maybe even A5, uh, A2 would go huge. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I did say then 52 pages, but that I imagine is 52 pages of content. So you imagine buying, you know, a magazine back in like the early 90s. 52 pages seemed, of adverts. <laughs> yeah, it might have seemed like it was 200 odd pages, but yeah, more than half of that was often advertising. But I do think it's great when you see magazines from your childhood coming back again. I mean, and I know Chris does stuff with Zap, you know, the annuals and stuff he brings out. I mean, I'd love to see, like, you know, official PlayStation magazine, you know, the original one coming back out with some new demo discs or Super Play or Amiga Format or Amiga Power, like special editions of them would be incredible, even if it was just one-offs, I think. Yeah, yeah, I love, I love this kind of magazine culture. And, like, you know, a lot of people miss that style of writing as well and uh, the style of reviews and the kind of cheekiness that comes with these mags. Yeah, so uh, definitely worth a back on Patreon if you remember Crash Magazine. Of course, I'll link that up and everything else we talked about in our show notes at theretrohour.com. Now, in a moment, we are going to be talking about really interesting topic, actually, unreleased video games. Now, we're going to be joined by our guest this week, Frank Gaskin, who's just made a book. You may know his website, Games That Weren't. I mean, he started that back in... 1999 so he's been studying this stuff for like you know over 20 years now and he's actually just released a book with sam dyer and the crew from bitmap books it's called the games that weren't and it's 80 games explored i think this is actually the biggest book that bitmap books have released it's over 640 pages worth of unreleased games with you know some legends from the industry interviewed in here as well and covering games from like the 1970s right up to the modern day and i think there is always something about, you know, especially when you finally get your hands on a game that you read about as a kid, maybe in a magazine you saw like a preview of it or, you know, even sometimes the would review unfinished games. And then you go into like, you know, Electronics Boutique or your local game shop trying to get the release date and then they'd always be like, oh, you know, it's coming next month. Eventually it wouldn't happen. And then when you finally do get to play games that you only kind of read about as a kid, it kind of feels like you've got a bit of a lost treasure on your hands, I think. There is something, yeah, a bit of a forbidden treasure about getting hold of an unreleased video game. Yeah, I always love covering those stories of kind of lost games and, you know, found stuff. 
Yeah, and I think there's also something quite tragic about it as well because you think, you know, all these development teams who put the heart and soul into it, sometimes for years, and sometimes companies had like millions of pounds spent on these and then at the last minute the games got cancelled. So we're going to be exploring some of the most iconic games that weren't unreleased games with Frank Gaskin in a couple of minutes' time on the Retro Hour podcast. Before we do, let's just give a big thank you to our amazing supporters, people who've backed this podcast on Patreon and ensure that we've got a future, meaning that we can keep bringing you a podcast out every single Friday. And of course, for backing us on Patreon, you will get a mention on a future episode in the Retro Hour Hall of Fame. Like this week, thank you to Hans Wolf, Gav Silat, Alessandro, Phil Bork, and Chad Clark, who all made donations into our Patreon. And if you'd like to do the same, we'd massively appreciate the support. It really means a lot to us, and you can find that right now. The links are on our website at theretrohour.com. Right then, time to talk games that weren't with this week's special guest. Frank Gaskin is next on the Retro Hour podcast. You're listening to the Retro Hour podcast, and it's time to welcome on this week's very special guest. Now today, we're going to be talking about a topic that I think is one of the most interesting subjects, and somewhat it's got a bit of a a tragic side to it as well, and always makes me feel a bit jealous, because, you know, often these games look incredible and you haven't had a chance to play them. Today, we're going to be talking about unreleased games, or if you like, games that weren't, with the man behind the legendary website and this amazing new book that's been released through Bitmap Books. Let's welcome to the show... Frank Gaskin, welcome to the Retro Hour. Hi, you're right. Thanks very much for having me. No problem at all. Now we're going to get into um, a bit more about your amazing website. That's you know just an incredible resource, all about unreleased games and this new book that you've just released with Bitmap Books in just a moment. I mean, but getting back to the roots of games that weren't, I was reading that you actually started this project and came up with the idea back in the mid nineties. Um, yeah. So basically. Uh, when I was a kid, I used to read a magazine called Commodore Force that um, used to be Zap64, and they had this particular article um, called That Was The Game That Wasn't. So it was just sort of covering uh, games like the Great Guiana Sisters and Parasol Stars, various titles that never got released. And I was absolutely fascinated by it, especially the ones with the screenshots. And it, mm. it just kind of grew from there, really. It kind of began um, being something that I wanted to kind of try and find some of those games myself. And yeah, it just kind of exploded from there, really, and sort of grew into this website over time. Everybody's kind of got a game that they wished came out on the system or that they were kind of building up hope for and saw screenshots of, and it was never released. Were there any titles that really kind of you were excited about? Uh, the the main one for me was probably Daffy Duck, um, which is one of the main games that we were searching for for quite a number of years. And um, I remember... It was reviewed in Zap64, and it was a, a game by High Tech, who did quite a lot of the Hanna-Barber games and uh, Warner Brothers games. And this particular title was probably their highest scoring game that they did. And then it, I was looking in the shops for it, couldn't find it anywhere. And then suddenly, about a month or two later, they had uh, a note saying that High Tech had gone under. So um, I remember being really gutted about that at the time. So that's, I'd say that's maybe probably the first one I really kind of was aware of. I mean, why do you think it's important to document unreleased games? Well, I think it just seems such a shame that a lot of these developers uh, have spent months, possibly even years, working on something so hard just for it to be kind of all chucked away for no reason. It seems a massive shame. There are some particular titles which um, they kind of crash and burn just because the company went bust. Uh, And there might be a really, really decent game 
sort of there to discover uh, one that might actually be very playable. So there's kind of this part of that and also trying to share people's hard work. So it's kind of, we, we get the opportunity to kind of celebrate it as well. Well, you set the website up in 1999. Um, how much interest was there? Were there like people contacting you with extra details and stories about these games? Yeah, it's quite surprising. When so when the website came about, it's mostly just sharing uh, initial findings that I had found just from friends and contacts in the um, 64 scene. Um, when we started putting stuff up on the web pages, we put titles like Deadlock and Armalite 2, just uh, not actual downloads, but just information saying here's a game that was never released and we'd like to try and find it. And then the developers of those games just saw the pages and got in touch in that way. And it's the website suddenly opened up quite a lot of avenues so we did get quite a few developers getting in touch from that point and um that would then lead for them getting in touch with other developers and sort of spreading the word and it's kind of snowballed from that point on and imagine getting on the internet must have opened up a lot of you know research avenues to find out about games that maybe you weren't aware of before i mean what what kind of some of the games that actually inspired you to start this website then was it kind of a stage of you just seeing more and more of them all the time it was mostly the uh, games in the original article that inspired it. So um, at the start, the main thing was to try and track down those games. To actually try the, the ones where there were screenshots in particular, Great Guiana Sisters. Um, the main thing was I just wanted to find them so I could actually see what they were like to play. There was that kind of that excitement of being able to play something that you're not meant to. So that's yeah. it. Kind of grew from there. So the website was a way of trying to showcase the things that i had found but also to open up and try and look for other things that i'd also found on my travel so other titles that were reviewed in the magazines at a time and which never surfaced in the hope that for it being on the internet more people would get to see it and then people would um, hopefully get in touch maybe with a copy or even the developers themselves get in touch as well you, you may have known about a few titles but did you find when you were looking for stuff that you were finding more and more games um, yeah, definitely. So, several different av- avenues would sort of open up um, different games or new games I've never heard about. So, first of all, when you got in- when you had the developers getting in touch with you about a game that you had on the website, they often would come back and say that they um, also worked on these other titles as well. Um, so, if they dug out their work disks, you wouldn't only just get the game you advertised on the site, but you'd also get a bunch of other stuff as well. But additionally. When I started ramping up the website and doing more research, it was mostly going through old magazines, uh, gaming magazines like Zap and everything. And just trawling through those um, was a massive eye-opener because just th- there's just absolutely tons of stuff from the likes of Zap64, preview screenshots and stuff, showcasing games or even ad- advertising games that just never got released uh, in the end. So, it, yeah, it, it just kind of... Um, the more you do, the more you kind of uncover as you go along. So the more research or more magazines you go through, the more you find. And the more people you speak to, the more avenues it opens up. Because um, those developers that you're speaking to also know other people as well who worked on other unreleased games. So it kind of just keeps going from that point on and you build up this kind of network uh, of information. One example was um, we are chatting to a guy called Colin Porsche who did Operation Wolf on the Commodore 64 and did a head over heels and stuff. And I just got talking to him because I was quite interested in uh, in those games because of favourites growing up. And just by chance, he turned around and he said, oh, yeah, I worked on a Rainbow Islands 2 game for Ocean that never got released. And I was thinking, hold on. Wow. 
And we're at the time we were trying to find out about parasol stars, which um, got lost by ocean. Apparently, the discs were kind of lost in a burglary or something like that. And um, we found it was Colin that had done them. So just randomly by looking somewhere else, would uncover this uh, uh, this long mystery that had been sort of running for about like ten years or something ridiculous. Do you find as well that, you know, when you're talking to people that worked on these games, are some of them a little bit reluctant to kind of relive those projects and experiences that, you know, essentially they wasted probably a large part of their life on? Yeah, there is a bit of that, um, which is quite sad, really. You just get some people who got badly burned by the industry. So when they they worked on a lot of projects, which um, they didn't get paid for, for instance, and it was a particularly stressful time in their life. So um, understandably, it's it's not something they really want to kind of look back on at all. They, even even the fond memories, they just kind of want to park that in the past, and you kind of just have to respect that. Really, sometimes um, I know I've known people in the industry who, you know, given it some time, they've kind of mellowed a little bit and they've changed their mind later on. So, but if people are if people don't want to talk about stuff, then you just have to let it go. Really. You know, one thing we find doing the show as well is often you'll talk to someone who worked on a project and maybe, you know, obviously a game that didn't come out and they'll be like, oh, yeah, I've got a copy of that up in the attic or something, <laughs> not realising what a big deal it is to, you know, guys like us. Do, do you find that sometimes that they're like, really, you're interested in that? Uh, yeah, definitely. They, they, Some people just don't understand um, why people would get so excited about something that was unreleased compared to something they had released. So that they think they've got something in their attic which is maybe only like 20% complete. It's just like a test demo or something like that, and you've you've got this person on the other end getting really excited about them digging out this disc, and you do get some pretty bemused sort of responses to that. But yeah, it's it's hard to it's hard to explain to people why 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 it's quite nice to try and get them to back up that stuff. It's sometimes is it hard to get people to actually talk emotionally about them because games like Sex, Drugs, and Rock and Roll pretty much took down sensible and and you know big mm. companies and uh there's a lot of kind of negative stuff associated with unreleased games i guess um it it does it does occasionally it depends on the person really i mean for sex drugs and rock and roll um i mean john Hare, he's had quite a few cancelled projects over the years and quite surprisingly he's, he's really passionate about talking about those projects even though you know sex drugs and rock and roll did essentially take down sensible software i mean but you will get other people that yeah they it is a really painful time for them because of the financial loss that they had i mean there was one person who worked on a particular game um who was just so upset about the whole ordeal that they went through they lost money and almost lost their house that they you know that that was it they just didn't want to talk about it at all it was too painful for them and yeah there are quite a few stories like that unfortunately and I guess if you're a big developer as well, you've probably got a bit of a thicker skin uh, having done like hundreds of projects. Yeah, I, I suspect that's maybe why John is quite open about talking about these projects and he's he's quite open about the failures and very honest about them as well, about what went wrong and what he would do differently, um, which is good to see. But yeah, as I say, it's it depends really on the person that you're speaking to and what exactly they've gone through. Well, obviously, Frank, you've been researching this stuff for over two decades now. I mean, have you spotted any kind of common themes or reasons that a game will not be released? Yeah, I'd say it. Just thinking back, so in towards the end, like because the main focus we had initially on the site was for the Commodore sixty four, and um, looking at most of the games that we started to cover at the beginning, the main reason was simply the either the company going bust or 
um, the company decided to pull out of the Commodore 64 market. So that was quite common towards the end. There was quite a lot of games around about the 1993 era that were simply dropped because the market had gone. Um, so I think that's maybe the common theme. But as you sort of go into later years, um, it, it can just be that sometimes the project's a bit overambitious. Um, but they haven't kind of allocated enough resource or time or money. And um, I'd say that's the common theme. But it changes as the years go on, I'd say. So people could have kind of been aiming for a user base and then whilst they were developing that game, that user base disappeared or diminished. Yeah, that it was fairly common, especially towards the end of a machine's life, that you'd see that quite a bit. So any particular machine, if you look around about the time when it was struggling and, um, I mean, f- for example, like the Atari Jaguar, when it was really struggling, you can see like a whole list of titles just getting dropped and that's because the platform was failing. So... And the companies either saw that themselves or Atari were dropping some of the games themselves because of um, they were in financial trouble and that kind of thing. So have you helped any of these games become available to play by the community since starting the website? You know, maybe developers have actually got completed copies that have you've helped them get it out there? So, yeah, the, especially on like the Commodore 64 side, we've um, there's been hundreds of games that we've sort of helped um, take developers' discs, we've preserved them, and then we've sort of, tidied those games up and made them available so um, some examples the big ones maybe solar Jetman um was a game where the developer sent us his uh final copy of the game um so we backed that up and we were able to release that onto the website there was games such as daffy duck where we recovered all of the source code for the entire game and then we had to get someone to work on that and piece all that together and uh, there's quite a few cases like that on the website overall people sometimes even just come to us and they've backed up their own discs and um, their own ROMs and they've kind of supplied them to us to put on the website as well. So it's kind of a, there's quite a good mixture overall. What's that feeling like, you know, that when you get hold of these files and you know that you're kind of the first person to play this game outside of the development team? Uh, it's, it's really exciting, especially if, it has to, if it's particularly a game that you have an attachment to. So if it's one that you've seen growing up in the magazines and you had that anticipation building up to play it, then that makes it a heck of a lot more exciting um, compared to something that you never heard about before. I mean, that's still exciting, but if it's actually seeing a screenshot from a magazine come to life and you can actually move it around and hear the sounds for the first time, that is um, really exciting. Like, I remember when I first loaded up Solar Jetman, I knew that it was having it had music by um, one of the Folin brothers. So Hit seeing the game load up, the title screen appear, and then uh, Jeff Folin's music playing um, was just put a massive smile on my face. It was really, really nice. And what makes it even more special is that the disc that we saved it from was probably it may have been the last copy in existence as well. So that there's there's excitement, but a bit of nervous uh, nervous excitement as well because you you don't want to mess up backing that disc up or get it scratched or anything like that. <laughs> You're trying to back it up so carefully, thinking it might be the last one or something as well. Yeah, I guess that's really scary with stuff like bit rot around. <laughs> You're oh, just yeah. wondering how long is it going to be um, until we can't save some of these games, you know? <laughs> yeah, well, I think it's a real problem. It's a real problem with things like bit rot. Um, <laughs> I get it on CDs even now, just like those CDs that are meant to be indestructible. You chuck coffee over and that, and uh, yeah, they're all starting to sort of deteriorate. So, yeah, it's quite a, a real problem, really. Well, 20 years after creating the website, you've put the stories into a book. So tell us how this project started and how it was kind of turned into a book. 
so basically when I was um, I was going through this, I think, I don't know if it's a midlife crisis or the verge of one, I'm not sure. Because um, I, I work in the web, basically. So I do a lot of websites and small coding projects. And they're generally things that you do, they last for a couple of years and they get chucked away. And part of what I wanted to do is I wanted to do and work something on something a bit more permanent. So the idea came up to do a book. Um, and in addition to that, the website was also coming up for the 20th anniversary of how long I've been working on it. So it just, it just kind of came together, really. I was chatting to my friend, Vinny Mainolfi, who does the Freeze 64 fanzine, and I was kind of saying to him about it, about what, what, should, I be, what should I do, what could I do? And he suggested about writing the book on the subject, and it just made complete sense. So I think we st- started kicking that off around about 2013. And the book goes so in-depth as well. I mean, looking through the pages you've got here, 644 pages and, you know, kind of going as far back as the 1970s. And I find that era particularly interesting in the book, the fact that you're talking about, you know, games from the 70s. You know, there's like gambling machines you're talking about there as well. (laughs) What are some of the earliest examples that you you talk about in the book? Yeah, so the one you mentioned was Blackjack. So that was kind of, that could have potentially have been the first ever proper blackjack gambling machine with a microprocessor so that was particularly interesting it might have put some people off at the start i thought that's why i kind of joke at the beginning um not to ask for a refund as a legitimate reason why we're putting a gambling machine in as the first game but um some of the other ones mostly atari based because atari was one of the main sort of players at the time and um uh, there was an interesting title called oops also by uh, cinematronics that was kind of a quite a funny one really because it, it, essentially you're controlling like a group of sperm on the screen yeah. <laughs> you have to kind of fertilize an egg and it's just such a bizarre story about this uh, such a odd looking game but what was interesting about that particular title was how it sort of evolved and eventually it became the inspiration for what became star castle so that was kind of a nice thing to kind of piece together and um, figure out as well so yeah there's quite a few in there, different examples, really. It's, it's hard to kind of focus on the favourite. I'd say Oops was probably one of the favourite ones I enjoyed sort of covering back then. Well, I love the story of Cannonball. And uh, that was an Atari game <laughs> that was considered too violent, right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's um, so originally it was going to be an arcade game. So the arcade is what we show in the book. And um, basically Owen Rubin did these sound effects where I think he just got some wet, cloths or something and threw them at the floor to make this really realistic splat sound and atari took one look at it and just said no that's we're definitely not using that and uh that was it they kind of they just dropped it after that but they still went ahead and did the vcs version in slightly slightly different form um obviously probably because you didn't have the realistic sprites or sound effects so well, I mean, you know, it's not just games that you cover in the book as well. You also cover unreleased hardware. And uh, one story I thought was particularly interesting was the Atari Game Brain. Tell, tell us a bit about this then. Uh, so the Atari Game Brain was, uh, it was being done around about the same time as the Atari 2600. So um, they had this machine where essentially it was, they'd previously done Pong variants and a, and a stunt cycle game. And the idea was, try and sort of compress everything into one piece of hardware that ran these different individual games but the problem was that it was quite outdated at the time they did it they were just about to release the 2600 which had um, individual games on individual cartridges and then they just had this limited shelf life machine with which only had about seven games tops so they kind of looked at it and looked at the vcs and just thought it didn't really make sense so they just decided to scrap it, it was 
bizarre decision really to even consider it. I think it's just it's just at that time um, where it was overlapping with the VCS coming out. So yeah, it's, it's unfortunate, but an interesting piece of history. A couple of them have actually sneaked out, and a few museums have them, which is quite nice to see though. Well, one famous system that was cancelled was the Conics multi-system that I remember, you know, reading about as a kid and being really hyped for. And in the book, I mean, you've got some great pictures in there as well of like, you know, Jeff Minter, um, who was working on games on the Conics as well. You know, pictures I'd never seen before. I mean, that, that's quite an interesting story. And how did you actually speak to Jeff quite a bit about that then when you're writing that section? Um, yeah, so he's quite a tough one to sort of tie down a bit as well because he, um, he's quite a busy man um so trying to get hold of him by email is difficult but he jeff goes along to the um play retro events quite a lot usually yep. he has a stand at them so i just kind of collared him at one of those with a dictaphone and with a list of questions and um yeah he's really 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 helpful and just kind of went in great detail about a lot of what happened back then and what the process was for him um so yeah it was good to get his input on it. I think it's quite important for a lot of the write-ups to have the input of the people that worked on it. Uh, so, yeah, Jeff was, you know, he's really good to have a chat with, really. Well, there's some so, games that you covered that um, failed testing. I mean, was that kind of a common theme, that, you know, games wouldn't get past the testing phase? In the early days, it seemed like it. Was, um, probably later on, it may have happened a little bit. So the, the ones where it failed testing is mostly in the 70s and sort of early 80s with the arcade games. Um because they had that testing process to see how popular a game would be in the in the in the public market, um, and often, yeah, if something did perform badly, they would drop it. I, and we interviewed Eugene Jarvis, and he was talking about the fact that Defender tested really badly when they, you know, put that in the arcades for people to try out. So it all seemed like, you know, the fact that that was a make or break thing for a lot of games. Like we probably missed out on a lot of great games because of that limited audience that just didn't get it. Yeah, I think so. There's always a case like that. It, some of the games like uh, mini golf for instance is it's quite a nice little game for its time it just um unfortunately it might just be that you get the wrong people testing it at the time so you might not get the right people seeing the game so i think it is a real risk that you will have had games back then that were cancelled which didn't really deserve to be and other games that of course were picked and put out there just because the right people were there at the right time what were some of the most tragic stories you've heard when researching I'd say one of the mo one of the more tragic titles that didn't get released for me was probably Solar Jetman. So um that was on that was gonna be for the a conversion of the NES game on like a multi uh, a number of platforms such as the sixty four Spectrum and, and uh Amiga and ST. And the game was essentially complete on all of the platforms. Um but what happened essentially was that the game bombed quite badly in the US. So there wasn't much suddenly Storm who were looking to sort of publish the game, sort of lost faith in it completely and decided not to release it. They thought it was going to bomb over here as well. And had they sort of kept faith and looked at the European figures, they would have seen that actually it was selling quite well over here. So they just completely scrapped an entire game for no real legitimate reason. Um, uh. It could have sold, I think it could have sold pretty well. I mean, you mentioned before that you get, um, you know, kind of prototypes of developers. I mean, is there any that you've got in your personal collection that are not available publicly and you have to keep to yourself? Um, so, yeah, so Green Lantern at the moment is, uh, so I helped back this up as part of the book. So there's screenshots in the book showing this prototype for the first time. And um, unfortunately, because of the license attached to it, we're actually unable to release it at the moment. We're hopefully going to, 
sort of negotiate and see if we can put something out because it's only a it's, it's quite a short prototype there's nothing much to it so i couldn't see it doing much harm but you have to be really careful with these things so that's only that that's the main thing i'm really sitting on most of the stuff that i thankfully get hold of we do manage to get to put on the website straight away um just with a caveat that if um, anyone's not happy then we'll take it down that kind of thing I guess often trying to find out who owns the rights to it can be difficult with all these companies, you know, either having closed down or they've been acquired like numerous times over the last couple of decades. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, a lot of the companies don't exist anymore or they've been absorbed by numerous companies over the years. So um, sometimes if we, most of the time, because the stuff we put up is so old and isn't really going to have any effect on anyone, we, we put everything up on the website just with a caveat to say that if they're not happy then we'll take it down straight away and that kind of thing but um the thing is if we if we don't preserve a lot of this stuff then it's just going to disappear completely um as, as i kind of alluded to earlier the media's rotting all the time it's deteriorating all the time and um often i've had discs come through from developers and a lot of those discs don't read anymore you have to kind of do a lot of work to try and get something off them and then they might not read ever again and that's it so if we don't do it then this stuff's going to be lost so well was there a company with a particular track record for not releasing games like atari seems mentioned quite a lot early on in the book and also there's quite a few amiga titles as well yeah so yeah atari had quite a lot of arcade machines that were cancelled so that's one of the things i found as i was doing the book i wasn't previously aware of it until i really started doing some digging from my experience in on the 64 side when i was covering that and from ocean uh, ocean software in particular had seemed to have a lot of titles which got canned at various stages especially towards the end actually um so they they worked on quite a few titles before they got taken over by infograms and um they seem to have a lot of titles in development health things like lobo um, and various others as well even green lantern was in development health quite a while so yeah, System 3, I think, ha- have had quite a few titles cancelled. They- they've had Last Ninja sort of dragging on uh, for the modern-day platforms numerous times. They've always made an announcement about a new Last Ninja, and then that never seems to turn up at all. That kind of dies a death as well. So It was interesting to see about um, Constructor as well, because that title came out later on the PC, but it really seemed like it was kind of fit for the earlier systems. Um, yeah, so it was... That was originally started on the Amiga, so we it was only about a month ago, I think, we found some screenshots in the magazine, sort of showing it off on the Amiga, so we just put them up on the website, and uh, it looks like a very different game back then, but it, was, it seems like they cancelled it in the early 90s, and there was quite a large gap till they sort of took it on and restarted it, but I think System 3 have done that quite a bit over the years. I was going to say, Putty Squad springs to mind. I mean, I remember, you know, getting a demo of that, I think, on a magazine cover disc. And then, you know, again, that's a success story, though, isn't it? A game that actually is now finally available to play thanks to the community who are interested in unreleased games. Yeah, I mean, that that was huge for the Amiga community. That was their kind of their holy grail. And I remember they were trying for years to get hold of um, the developers to release a source code or do something with it. Um, and I think it was just a piece of luck, really, that, they were doing this new release of the game, I think, on uh, PSP Beta. I think I can't quite remember. And there was, an, well, it might have been PlayStation, PlayStation Four, I think. And um, yeah, PS Four, it came out. That was it. So it was back in about 2013. And I don't know why they decided to do it, but I think System Three said they had the source code and they were going to release it 
to the community for free, which is quite an unprecedented thing. It was massive. It really got the Amiga community excited. And um, yeah, there was a bit of a bit of trouble. They, had to, they almost backtracked at first because I think they had trouble getting the data off the discs and there was a bit of uproar. And thankfully someone come along and offered to do all the work of backing it up and preserving it and making it available. And then we had this like wonderful Christmas where it was released. And I think that must have done them some really good PR, really. Well, that was our friend Galahad, you know, was, um, famously, he was actually a pirate back in the day yeah. on the Amiga. And he was a guy that obviously helped System 3 release that. I mean, I guess, you know, often the piracy scene does kind of help preserve this stuff, I imagine. Yeah, d- definitely. Um, if it wasn't for the pirate scene and just for people backing up um, ROMs to play on their, on their emulators. So many of us, when we started out uh, with the emulators, we were backing up our own collections just so we could play stuff on our PC. If it wasn't for people like us doing this kind of thing, then you wouldn't be able to play a lot of this stuff now. A lot of it would be lost. And a lot of companies, I think, um, are reliant on that as well because they do a lot of the retrospective uh, game packs on modern-day consoles. And I'm sure that some of the stuff that they release is thanks to some of the work that people have done. So there were a few arcade titles like Snow Bros and Liquid Kids for the Amiga that were going to get released but uh, didn't end up getting released in the end. What happened there? Um, so I think what happened for one of those games, at least Ocean France, they spent all the time doing the conversion work and Ocean hadn't actually got the license to, to release it. So it um, seems like a complete waste of time, really, because <laughs> I would have thought they'd try and get the license first before you try and attempt to do a conversion. But um, thankfully, the developers had kept hold of all their discs and um, the Amiga community managed to uh, convince them to release it. I think Snow Brothers, though, um, unfortunately, there's a... Uh, Atari ST version out there which would be I think would be really good to try and recover that still hasn't been found just yet but yeah I think Amiga's been quite blessed really with some really cool conversions that have been found and Ocean France seems to be fantastic at doing them as well yeah, talking about licensing games, I mean, I was really interested to read some of the stories in the book about, you know, times when a license has been pulled, you know, mid-development. Like um, there was a Terminator game on the NES that you talk about in the book. Yeah, so the Terminator was essentially being done by Sunsoft and it looked like they had the license, um, they had all going and everything was good, but then suddenly it got revoked by them and then essentially they had it turned into Journey to Silius um, or released it as Rough World in Japan. So... Basically, I think what had happened was that the game didn't follow the film plot correctly due to cultural differences between Sunsoft Japan and the US. So um, they'd went ahead and done what they thought was going to be a decent Terminator game and the um, the film company wasn't happy at all. So that was it. But thankfully, they kind of just reworked it and uh, come out with uh, Journey to Silius, which wasn't, which wasn't too bad. It's quite a nice game, actually. Are there any examples you can think of of projects that were just too ambitious for the time or the technology that they were trying to get get it made on? I'd say Sonic Extreme is probably quite a good example because they were trying they were trying to test different engines out. So they were working on hardware that had quite a few bottlenecks. So um, they were trying to use different engines. They they wanted to use um, the engine from Nights into Dreams as well, and um, they weren't allowed to use it in the end, which was a shame actually because I think it would have worked really well in that. Um, some other examples there was a game called black hawk that we cover so this was like a kind of almost uh, it was utilizing the fractal engine that lucas arts did um like on rescue on fractalus they were they were reusing that engine to do sort of skyscrapers so you fly around in a helicopter and um 
it's kind of a nice idea but on the c64 because the processor chugs along a little bit compared to like the z80 it was it, it couldn't quite do it at a decent speed the frame rate was too choppy and i mean that's kind of a common reason as well as if the the hardware if it's trying to do a 3d game on old hardware then often they would scrap it because the processors just cannot do the calculations fast enough i'd say that's something that's fairly common it's cropped up quite a bit over the years and you've got a section on i mean something that's been very on trend over the last year or so i mean bandersnatch you know the um the, the, the games that were far too ambitious for the the hardware they were designed on actually needed extra hardware i know you cover those the, the imagine games in there too yeah the bandersnatch title was a really interesting story overall um mainly that i think the game would have been possible it's just i think they just obviously overspent and just wasted all that money and um went bankrupt before they could get anything out i don't know i think the price point for the game was far too high because the price that of paying for the hardware they were trying to sell it for something like 40 pounds with all this stuff bundled in the box which many people back then probably wouldn't have paid so i think um there was the other company microgen they tried to do something very similar like the mega games as well and they would they did shadow the unicorn with like a ram expansion pack and i think that ended up the cost of producing all that would eventually sort of take them down as well so it's like a lot of these companies back then had a lot of ambition but the price of the the ram and the hardware upgrades was too much back then so maybe that probably caused a lot of problems because i think it became easier perhaps maybe when the snes came out they started to do a lot of custom chips didn't they so what what's the most controversial game that's been banned then for reasons of kind of being too extreme or or, or too rude or violent uh, i'd say well thrill kill in the book is probably one of the key examples of one that's been that that got banned because of the violent content in that so there was sex drugs and rock and roll um essentially the when the publisher was taken over um it was like a christian belt publisher that took over so they had no interest at all at publishing the game they thought it was far too risque so very early on during the 70s so one of the games i mentioned called oops i think that would have that kind of got changed because of the controversy on it so that, that game, because it had sperm on the screen, so a, a game in the 1970s with sperm floating around on the screen um, would probably get banned straight away. And I remember there was part of the story tells where these secretaries walk in um, and they see the game running on the screen and they sort of run out screaming, saying, exclaiming that there's sperm on the TV screen. So when they saw that <laughs> happen, they decided maybe this is not a very good subject for an arcade because, you know, arcade is going to be full of kids, so a game with sperm, maybe we'll change that. So they changed it to spaceships or something like that. It's interesting uh, when you talked about Thrill Kill as well, because that was during the period that kind of gaming got a bit adult and, and a bit serious. And then other games later on, like uh, Manhunt came out and then was kind of removed from the shelf. And uh, if listeners don't know about Thrill Kill, it was kind of a, a mad fighting game where, where you're playing all sorts of different characters in a dungeon and it was very violent yeah so um i I think it's just the people not uh, people might produce stuff at the wrong time or be in the wrong place at the wrong time so it might just been it might just been the timing really so thrill kill maybe been done a couple of years later there might have been something controversial already it might also be to do with the publisher as well if the publisher is willing to take a risk or not so if I think that was the issue with Thrillkill is that the publisher got cold feet. If it was with another publisher willing to take a risk, um, you know, one of those publishers that know that the bad pubs publicity would be good publicity, essentially to sell it more, that kind of thing. Um, then they would have probably been fine. 
So I think it's just a case of being with the wrong publisher or the wrong person at the wrong time. When have technical limitations of the actual media itself led to games being cancelled, like uh, Frogger 2? Um, so Frogger 2, the, the main issue with that was mainly, it wasn't really the hardware as such. It was, well, I guess it, I guess it is really. It's, it's the cartridge cost, really. So the price on, so when they did games on consoles, one of the big issues with, and which put a lot of publishers out of business or out of the market, was the fact they had to kind of contribute and pay up a certain money up uh, a certain amount of money up front to produce a certain amount of cartridges, um, and that was the case with Frogger too, is that they had to contrib- they had to pay all of this money to get the cartridges done. It was just too much at the time, and um, I don't think they had much faith in the N sixty four at that point. So it made sense just to concentrate on the cheaper sort of PlayStation CD media. Well, there's one thing I wanted to ask about that um, I hadn't actually heard about before was another Mario game that was meant to be released on the Philips CDI. I mean, we all know about Hotel Mario and the Zelda games that came out, but there's meant to be another one, Wacky World, and they've got a section in um, in the book about that as well. I hadn't heard about this before, but that never saw the light of day. No, it's quite an interesting title as well because it looks very similar to Super Mario World on the SNES, same sort of style, and um, it it's just literally down to the deal that Philips had did with Nintendo to release a bunch of their games. So they CDI, I think he had like a Zelda game that was released on there. And um, I'm sure there's another one as well. I can't quite remember. Um, But yeah, unfortunately they didn't get to do too much. Um, Basically the personnel changed in the background and most of the people who were working on it decided to leave and work for different companies. So that was, that was the only real reason that kind of ultimately got canceled. It had, everyone had stayed around i think the game would could have actually been released um so it could have been a proper super mario world game on the on cdi which is just bizarre yeah and it might have shifted a few more units as well than uh, the other <laughs> games they put out on there yeah maybe not probably, probably not a good showcase of the machine in terms of the hardware but i mean it's it would have been a really interesting curiosity i know the no, a lot of people were quite interested in the Zelda game that came out on it well i guess some of the screenshots aren't amazing uh, that you get how, how do you actually get them cleaned up and put in the book and really have a nice way of representing that game uh so screenshots are really difficult so um say say for the double page spreads you want to try and get a really nice visual image which looks quite nice and clean um there's space to put the text and everything like that when taking the screenshots when they're scaled up they need to be kind of rescaled um using i think the linear mode just so you don't get distortion on the pixels you essentially just get the pixels sort of stretched you know when you get the anti-aliasing when you just do standard stretch and you expand it that's kind of what you want to avoid so you have to kind of do that with the images but when i was taking screenshots for the book i was just trying to take as many as i possibly could and then kind of left that to sam really to kind of pick some of the best ones to include because he's more of the designer sort of graphic artist and has the eye for the page layout so you'd literally just take hundreds and hundreds of screenshots for every game and just hope that one of them was going to be good enough. Thankfully, I think there was only a few games where I think it was like for the PlayStation. I was trying to capture the games from an emulator, and the quality wasn't quite wasn't quite there. So Sam had a contact um, who was able to kind of he was like an expert at taking screenshots from all these different emulators, and very kindly, I think he did the thrill kill screenshot and did some proper high res ones. And you've also got artist impressions of some games, like you know Bandersnatch, for example. That, that was kind of like a fun element to the book originally. So the plan, uh, one of the things that I knew is that uh, we had a number of titles covered in the book, which we didn't have anything to show at all. So there was no 
um, design documents, sketches or anything like that. Um, so I had the idea of maybe getting an artist to come in and either do sort of like a sketch, like a pencil sketch showing how the game may have looked um, or to recreate a screenshot using the limitations of the platform at the time. So that's the, eventually the direction we went. And Trevor's story did an absolutely fantastic job of doing a lot of those screenshots. And then we had, uh, we had Craig Stevenson do the Last Ninja one uh, for the Spectrum. Um, and it was just like a fun addition um, for the book. So you have something to actually see and imagine how it could have looked. And that was all based on sort of the developer recollections. So they all the recollections we pulled together, we gave them to the artists and they would then go off and come up with what they felt was a visual interpretation of it. But uh, the additional bonus that we had is that uh, quite a few of the screens, so just thinking of example, uh, Death Watch on the Jaguar, uh, we had a lot of grainy sort of video footage screens that were quite poor quality. So Trevor took these and kind of managed to recreate those. Um, Bandersnatch, actually, the one you mentioned, was another key example. Trevor took some of the screens from the commercial breaks video where the screenshot of the game running on a TV at a slight angle, very blurry and low quality. He took that and did that repixel interpretation. So what you get is this really crisp image on the page that just pops out. And um, Sam had the idea of trying to do that for a number of the games. And I think it it's made a massive difference to the quality. Well, you know, when you've been writing the book and the website as well, I mean, are there any kind of points in history where you see there's a lot of cancelled games? You know, like, for example, I imagine the video game crash in the 80s was probably a time when a lot of projects got cancelled. And then in the 90s, when everything kind of went 3D and the PlayStation was out, was there any kind of common eras that you spotted? Yes, yeah, so like you say, the uh, the crash of 1983 was quite a common reason for a lot of titles. So I think there's a couple in there in the book that were cancelled for that exact reason. So um, Dark Tower and the, and the collapse of the Vetrex was all down to that, unfortunately, which is a massive shame. Um, so during the 90s, yeah, you're completely right. Often we had so many platforms sort of coming and going during that era that that would be a fairly common reason for seeing a lot of stuff canned, literally because the the market had disappeared at that point um but it, it really does vary there's so many different reasons for cancellations it could just be down to if the company's doing uh, proper management of their money and not being overly ambitious with what they're trying to produce and if they're producing good quality games on a regular basis that kind of thing other reasons i've seen as well is just people losing interest in the development they kind of haven't got their heart set in it they might be given a project which they're not particularly passionate about so, for instance, they might be given a conversion of a game which they didn't really want to do in the first place. Maybe they wanted to convert another game. So their heart's not really set in it and they struggle to produce it and kind of get bored and they either leave the company or if they do finish it, you end up getting something which is really poorly reviewed. What's the process been like writing a book compared to doing the website then? I mean, was it, you know, when you started this journey, has it been, you know, like a, a much bigger process than you thought or how have you found writing it into a book form? It's it's been really interesting because uh, originally when I started out, I was imagining sort of like just a small pocket book, really, just with a couple of titles covered in in brief, like a maybe a page on each game or something like that, really simple. And um, as I started writing it, it just it just grew from uh, I just kept getting loads of information from developers, and uh, there was quite detailed stories that I had the potential to tell. So I decided just to go for it and. Uh, try and tell as full a story as I can, get the developer input um, from as many different people as I can, 
to try and tell the story. And it basically what happened was that the, the write-ups I was doing was starting to grow quite a lot. So they're becoming several pages long. But I didn't really worry too much about it. I just kept on going. But the problem with doing that and by keeping up that amount of research and trying to talk to different people, making sure you do that for every single game, it, it takes a very long time. So for most of the at the beginning, most of my time was spent just emailing people questions or doing Skype interviews and that kind of thing and doing and just trying to capture as much information as I can so I could then do the write-ups. And that took a that took quite a few years to get all that information together in the first place. And then you're trying to put it together. And I completely underestimated how long something like this would take. So there, there was times where I thought, um, am I ever actually going to finish this book? Am I ever going to get to the end? And yeah, it's so strange like being here now and seeing it released um, because it honestly didn't feel like I was going to get to that point. Well, one thing that I noticed was, you know, there was a lot of kind of 2D titles and it started to go into that 3D period with stuff like the PlayStation. Was that a big catalyst for not releasing a lot of these titles? Yeah, I think so. Um, Again, uh, Death Watch, that was a platformer game on the Atari Jaguar. So this was during an era where everyone was trying to push for 3D and um, Death Watch was just a 2D platformer. The, The main pull with that was that all the artwork was painted and scanned in it had a lot of color it looked really really good um but there was pressure because because of the playstation because of how impressive that was when it came out uh, any 2d games that were in development there was some pressure from developers for certain projects to say oh can we turn this into 3d and i remember someone uh who worked on death watch saying to me that atari essentially turned around to him and said right we want death watch as a 3d game and he just turned around and said, well, I'm sorry, but there's no magic 3D button that I can press to turn it into it. So it's going to be 2D or that's it. Uh, so, yeah, I think it did happen quite a bit. And certainly I've seen it during my sort of time setting the book up. Um, and it's a shame, really, because 2D games, I think, were still perfectly valid at that point. And a lot of games probably got cancelled for that reason, which is a massive shame. You know, because I think that era when the PlayStation came along and obviously you went from floppy disks and cartridges to suddenly CD-ROMs that held like six to 700 megabytes and everything had to be, you know, texture map 3D. And we've had people on the show like, you know, Mike Montgomery from Bitmap Brothers and John Hare, who you mentioned before, who said, you know, with their small studios who were used to having maybe two or three people working on an Amiga or a Mega Drive game suddenly needed a massive team of people and they just didn't have the resources to do it. Yeah, it must have been a massive culture shock. It just did seem to change suddenly there was that pressure to fill an entire cd just because they had the cd they felt they had to fill it some companies they just literally did a a basic standard game and just put um video essentially just to fill it and audio to fill it up at the beginning because they didn't know exactly what to do with it but there was that transition phase i think when you know games were becoming bigger and the technology was becoming bigger certainly with 3d stuff and open world more open world based games coming out um I think it just completely exploded at one point. I think that's why a lot of people actually got out of the industry as well, because it became less of a more, um, they kind of lost their individuality on a game. Uh, They just felt like a small part and a very big set of cogs really within a machine. And, uh, you know, one of the stories I think I've found over time is that a lot of people got out of the industry for that reason, because they lost um, that ability to make their own stuff and have uh, their personal input into it 
Well, Frank, you've been covering this stuff for, you know, more than two decades and your, your passion for it, you know, really comes through and it's incredible that you've now um, made this into a, this really comprehensive book. And like everything Bit My Book's put out, you know, it's beautifully made. Um, you know, I'm sure everyone's going to just love having this product and it's a real ode to unreleased games as well. I mean, speaking personally, are there any kind of um, holy grails for you, any games that you've kind of been after for maybe a couple of decades now and you really want to, you know, it's out there somewhere, but you still haven't managed to track it down yet? <laughs> I think people are going to get sick and tired of me going on about this game, but um, on the web on the website you can read about this title called Murder by US Gold. Right, um, a Commodore sixty four game. Um, it was basically a Cluedo based title. It was released on the Amiga and the ST and PC, I think, as well. Um, and it was reviewed by Zap sixty four and various magazines on the sixty four, and um, just never turned up. It completely disappeared. The game was complete reviewed, um, but but they didn't release it. I, and we don't fully know why trying to get an answer about why the game was never released um is like blood out of a stone really or well not really blood out of a stone it's more that people just don't remember they um i think a lot of production at us gold was kind of like a bit of a sausage factory as such that games come in and out and there wasn't really much attachment to games compared to maybe like a company like ocean so when you question people who were production managers back then they they sort of remember the title but they didn't know why it was cancelled for instance um, but that, that I'd say, is our like our main big one that's remaining. Originally, it was Daffy Duck, um, but we did manage to find that, thankfully. But Murder's like the last big one that I'm quite desperate to find. But I, I don't know. Um, we've been looking for it for so long. We've tried so many different avenues that it is getting to a stage now where there's not many more avenues I can really check. It's kind of hoping that someone just randomly stumbles across the disc and says, "Here, here it is," and then. Yeah, away I go. But so, if anyone's got a copy in their attic, get in touch with Frank. Yes, please. Uh, you, <laughs> my, my hair might grow back, maybe. Well, the games that weren't available on Bitmap Books now, I mean, you cover, you know, such a big era. I mean, pretty much, you know, from the inception of video games, 1975 to 2015, um, over 80 games in there as well. You've talked to legends in the industry, David Crane, Jeff Minter, Matthew Smith, Eugene Jarvis, and many more as well. And uh, you and Sam have very generously given us a signed copy um, that we can give away on this week's show as well. So we'll put a link to that. And uh, if you want to buy the book as well, because I mean, I've been, I mentioned before we started recording tonight that pretty much all of my Facebook titles timeline over the last you know over the bank holiday weekend was just my friends raving about what an interesting book it is so everyone needs to check it out i'll put a link in our show notes frank thank you so much for coming on it's been a pleasure talking to you okay thank you very much guys thank you